Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 168 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing some of the books in the new Star Wars canon, and I'm joined by two guests. So first up, we've got Chuck Wendick. As a game designer, he's contributed over 2 million words of material to the game industry, and he blogs about writing and pop culture at TerribleMinds.com. He also co-wrote the short film Pandemic, and his recent books include Mockingbird and Zeros. His new Star Wars novel, Aftermath, is the first book in the new Star Wars canon to be set between Return of the Jedi and the upcoming film Star Wars Episode Seven: The Force Awakens. So Chuck, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. And also joining us today is Alexandra Bracken. She's a New York Times bestselling author who wrote her first published book, Brightly Woven, as a student at the College of William and Mary. She's also the author of the Darkest Mind series of near-future thrillers, which have been optioned for film by 20th Century Fox. Her new novel, Star Wars Episode IV, A New Hope, The Princess, The Scoundrel, and The Farm Boy, presents a fresh retelling of the original Star Wars film. So Alex, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, so let's start out and have you guys talk a bit about your background as Star Wars fans. And Alex, I want to start with you because I know you have an interesting story about that. I do. I have actually grown up with Star Wars in a very real way. My dad, right up until he passed away a couple years ago, was a Star Wars collector. Pretty much from the time I was in first grade, so about age five on through the many decades. Um, And so every weekend... It just became kind of a routine of going to the toy stores. He was on like a first name basis with the store managers at Toys R Us. So we got to go into the back room to find the new toys that were coming out every week. And this was the Power of the Force era in the 90s, I should specify. But we were also going to a whole bunch of um, antique stores and shows trying to find a lot of the um, the older ceramics, the older carded figures. 12-inch figures, everything. And he ended up with like an, an incredible collection and an especially incredible poster collection, I think. And so I've been going to Star Wars conventions. I mean, pretty much from the time I was, I guess 1996 was my first Star Wars convention. And I've only missed one celebration. And it was the one that happened right after he passed away. So I think it was Celebration 6. So I grew up reading, all I wanted to read growing up were Star Wars Expanded Universe books. And it's just been a wonderful thing to come back to Star Wars after losing my dad and kind of reconnect to the story and the characters I love so much. Right. And so when you're a serious Star Wars collector like that, were there any particular items that he was particularly proud of owning or that you were always on the lookout for? He was, he ended up being really, really proud of his poster collection because he started expanding into a lot of the foreign posters. And if you've ever looked at them, the, um, the film posters for Poland are especially really cool and kind of odd. I mean, he just thought they were like wacky and wonderful. Um, he was really proud of the fact that he has what's, I guess, kind of colloquially known as the Mylar poster, which is a really rare poster that took him forever to find. Um, but he had sort of <laughs> the mainstays by the end. He had like um, plastic ape Jawa, which is unique, I guess, for those of you who are not in the collecting world, because it was a very limited run of the original Jawa figure that had a plastic kind of vinyl cape instead of the cloth cape. And they ended up changing it 
I heard because it was a choking hazard, but I think it was also because Kenner felt bad about it being like a smaller figure and having like a cheap material instead of like a nice cloth. So I don't know which one is true, <laughs> to be completely honest. But he had, you know, blue snaggle tooth, um, really everything. And he would constantly be going to all of the different shows. Like he went to the celebrations basically to go around and like meet all of the vendors. And um, he was constantly trading up and having figures graded. So, I mean, his favorite thing in the world was to, um, I mean, literally anyone we brought over to the house was drawn upstairs into his office <laughs> slash collection room and they could not escape until they got like a nice tour and walk around. He'd love that. So. <laughs> well, Chuck, how about you? Can you compete with that? What was your star Wars background as a fan? Like, Oh my God, I can't compete with that. I want that background. <laughs> I, I, I like want that. That's awesome. Um, I, no, I mean, I've been sort of, pickling and brining in the star wars universe for my whole life um not quite to that uh degree in terms of like the um uh the parents thing but my sister actually did take me to my first star wars film when i was four uh and it was uh return of the jedi at a or excuse me empire strikes back at a drive-in theater um and she knew <laughs> her boyfriend took her and uh her boyfriend also brought his little brother and she brought her little brother me and uh we you know we watched the movie. I'm not sure what they were doing up front, but we we kept our eyes very clearly on the movie. Um, so that to me was my first kind of moment uh, in the Star Wars universe. And then from there, it was I kind of became my own little uh, collector, even as a kid, because you couldn't just come home and uh, you know go to iTunes and pull up the movie or whatever. You couldn't just watch it again. You had to sort of recreate that stuff uh, in your own head. And so uh, toys and and the costumes and stuff always kind of be, was a part of. Uh, my childhood in terms of, um, you know, recreating those memories. So Star Wars has always kind of been there. It's, it's how I learned, you know, how to tell stories. Um, it's one of the things that sort of brought me together with friends and it brought me together with family. And now my own four-year-old son is getting into Star Wars just at the time there's a new movie coming out. So it's sort of this lovely kind of generational thing. And it's a thing that actually feeds into the book. Um, you know, Aftermath does a lot of effort to actually sort of talk about the generational component of star Wars and the generational component of, you know, there being these multiple wars and these multiple um, iterations of what's going on in the story worlds. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Alex was talking about these star Wars celebrations and conventions and things. Did you ever get drawn into that world? No, I've actually never been. I, I would like to hopefully go this next year to celebration. That would be awesome. Uh, and so Alex, so tell us a little bit more about the, these conventions and things. Do you have any memorable experiences from attending them? Oh my gosh. Okay. So each one, I feel like I have like a very random memory from each one. Um, <laughs> so the first convention I went to was in Arizona. It was put on by a toy store that was then called um, Empire of Toys and is now called Toy Anxiety, which is owned by a man named Ron Lewis, who we jokingly refer to as Uncle Ron because he was the main supplier of Star Wars vintage toys to my dad by the end. Um, he just became a close family friend. but. Um, so he, the store and I, I think like Steve Sansweet was involved with arranging this like mini convention. I dressed up as feeder bike Princess Leia on mm. from Endor. Um, and I also made a matching diorama and I did not win the costume contest, but I won the diorama contest, which is still a point of pride. I'm not going to lie. Hmm. Um, and that one was really memorable because it was the first time, you know, I got to have FaceTime with a lot of the stars. So like, Kenny Baker was there. Um, 
Peter Mayhew was there. Uh, just like so many of these actors who were willing to sit and chat with you and wanted to take photos with you. And that was my first real experience with any sort of convention. And then Celebration One was in Denver. Um, and it was at sort of a, I'm trying to remember, I think it was the Aerospace Museum, maybe. I can't remember the exact name, but that one is memorable because it was so cold and it rained the entire time that all of the outdoor booths basically flooded. All of the vendors were complaining about like damaged merchandise. They also had all of the Phantom Menace books on sale early. So you basically knew the entire plot of the book um, or of the movie by the time that you were done with the show. But and then Celebration 2 and 3 were in. Indianapolis. And I really remember being freezing cold at those shows because this store, the line to get into the celebration store to get all of the exclusive merchandise, which as a collector, my dad wanted, um, you would have to wait outside and line up in the morning and you would spend like an hour or two in the freezing cold. It was like April in Indianapolis. And I grew up in Arizona. So anything under 50 degrees is like really, really cold for me. <laughs> um, and I remember. Carrie Fisher came to, I think, Celebration 3, maybe. And I have like this very random memory of her being on the stage for her interview and basically saying something like, someone was like, oh, what's in your drink? And she's like, it's a little bit of Coke and a little bit of Diet Coke. And that way I can always be a little naughty, which is like very typically Carrie Fisher. But I mean, people are so patient at these conventions because you're waiting in line for everything. And but they're, everyone is like deliriously happy to be there. It's one of my favorite things to do to go to these shows. And I was at Celebration 7 this year in Anaheim. And it was like amazing to be back and to see the new decorations mixed with all of the old decorations and to sit in on a lot of panels. And it felt similar to Celebration 2 and 3 where you were getting so much excitement about the new films that were coming out and you were getting kind of fed juicy little tidbits. So... I, Chuck, I really hope you can go next year. I'm sure they'll, ha I'm sure they would love to have you. Um, It'd be awesome. It'd be really cool. Everything I see out of it is just such Im immense fan love. And I'm like, oh. Sounds like you should wear all your Hoff clothes because it sounds like it's always cold at <laughs> these things. I, know. I, was, I think the next one is in Orlando. And I think it's the second time it's been there. I think Celebration 5 was there because, yeah, it was because they did something special where they opened up. The, they opened up Disney World to the celebration attendees and they were kind of retiring the old Star Tours ride. So you got to ride the old ride for a little, for like one last time before they switched it over. Um, so that was really cool. They're so much fun. Every, <laughs> like I said, everyone is like so happy and just into it. And you make so many line friends and you kind of make line allies. So you're not necessarily stuck in a long line all day. You can kind of take turns and it's great. I, I mean, I cannot recommend it enough. Even as casual Star Wars fans, everyone should go. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so like, like I said, the main topic for today is we're going to be talking about the new Star Wars canon. And so, Chuck, for people who are just a little bit out of the loop, can you just explain what the, whole, what the deal is with this whole new Star Wars canon? Uh, sure. Um, obviously, uh, any, anybody who does not live uh, under a rock knows that there is a new Star Wars movie coming out. Uh, I'm pretty sure my dog knows there's a new <laughs> Star Wars movie coming out. Uh, so with that in mind, um, the new Star Wars film kind of generates a new plot line, and it takes um, the Return of the Jedi, uh, post-Return of the Jedi storyline into its own uh, direction. Um, and so you've got these new uh, stories coming out of that. Um, 
both uh, starting with Aftermath and then continuing on with various novels and uh, games like Uprising and uh, I think even you know Battlefront will even touch on a little bit of it and it sort of carries it starts building a bridge essentially to Episode Seven. Right. And so, how did you get involved in this whole deal? Uh, I tweeted about it, which is not really a way I recommend anyone get jobs uh, normally, but it is actually how I got the job. I uh, in a puzzling array of um, numerical magic. Uh, I guess I, some sort of numerological force was going on. Uh, on September 4th, last year, I tweeted that I wanted to write a Star Wars novel. I remember and, that. Yeah, it was weird. And I was like, I shake the internet to make a wish fall out and to see if I could. <laughs> I was kidding. I didn't really have any time to write a Star Wars novel. <laughs> and uh, people behind the scenes started to kind of make that happen. They started to conspire, uh, including like Gary Whitta, who uh, was one of the writers on um, Rogue One, the anthology film, and um, Jason Fry, another Star Wars novelist. And uh, these people kind of suddenly, you know, made that happen for me. And I was at New York Comic Con and I met Shelley Shapiro. And she said, well, I read one of your novels. And I said, well, and it was nice to meet you. I'm sorry. I won't. <laughs> and she said, no, no, I, I read Under the Imperial Sky. And I then wiped my brow and said, oh, you read the Star Warsy ones. That's very good. You didn't read any of the other ones, which are very not Star Warsy. Um, and she said it was felt like a really good fit and that my voice would work there. So um, next thing I know, I was writing a Star Wars novel. And I didn't really know at the time I was going to be writing a very big Star Wars novel that had not uh, been explained to me or um, described to me. So that was pretty exciting once I found out what I was doing. Yeah, actually, speaking of Gary Whitta, he was a guest on this show a couple episodes back. So uh, He's yeah. awesome. He's a, he's a really, really fun guy, yeah. Working on uh, Rebels now, as I understand it. Yeah, it was, he couldn't say anything about... Um, Rogue One. <laughs> so that was no, a no, because no. he would be literally beheaded by a, a lightsaber. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It, it's like Pentagon levels of secrecy over at Lucasfilm. <laughs> right now, there's like a red dot probably on my forehead, just in case. <laughs> well, but it must be. I mean, you, you, at least you guys can talk about these books now because they're out. I mean, it must be a relief to finally be able to say things about them. Yeah, it is. It is. Well, and so Alex, how did you get tapped for this assignment? So I have kind of like an interesting way that I came to the project in that I guess I should start by say, explaining that my editor knew that I had this whole Star Wars background because I had been, I think, a little bit late on a deadline because of a Star Wars convention. So she was, she knew and um, knew about my dad and all of that. And we have a big uh, convention in publishing every year in New York called BEA, which is Book Expo America. And the publishers usually have a kind of dinner and they are presenting authors and titles to booksellers and um, news people and, you know, the whole media crowd. And at this dinner, they were introducing Tony Dutrelezi's picture book using the Ralph McQuarrie art called The Adventures of Luke Skywalker. And they were kind of talking a little bit about their plans um, for their publishing program for Star Wars, because Disney had recently acquired Star Wars, I think, at that point. And I kind of turned and looked at her and must have had like this maniacal mm. look on my face because she was like, no, you do not have time to write a Star Wars book right now. You owe me two other books. Like, no. So um, I actually am sort of like, I guess, a little bit of a pinch hitter, maybe, because originally... R.J. Palacio, who's the author of the wonderful middle grade book, Wonder, was scheduled to write the adaptation of A New Hope, and she had to back out because her schedule, I think, is absolutely bonkers. And so I got a call one day from my agent kind of out of the blue, and she was like, I am shocked and delighted on your behalf. Like, do you want to do this project? And I had this like very 
immediate like visceral like panicked moment of almost saying no like I can't possibly write Star Wars I love it so much (laughs) I could never do it justice um and obviously my love for it went out in the end but I had the best time writing this and it was a challenge for me because it was one of the I it was like basically the first time I had written a true middle grade novel and middle grade is just a term we use in the industry to describe books that are kind of written for the eight to 12 year old crowd. Right. And I understand that you have a background as a star Wars fan fiction writer. Did that uh, play any role in the, (laughs) no, my star Wars fan fiction is kind of, I don't want to say it's my secret shame because it's, I'm neither ashamed of it and it's obviously not a secret anymore. (laughs) But I, I don't like to go into specifics about it because it's all still on the internet. I lost my password to fanfiction.net. So I'm like terrified someone is going to figure out like what, <laughs> like which story I actually wrote. But it was, it was pretty, I mean, I wrote most of this between the ages of like 12 and 16. So you can imagine the quality level. But I made up for it, I think, in passion. But <laughs> yeah, I definitely started out as a Star Wars fan fiction writer. Hmm. Well, and so I know that there there was already a novelization of the first movie by Alan Dean Foster. Could you say a bit about how yours is different and why they wanted to do this new version? Yeah, of course. So my understanding, the way that this project was pitched to me, was that they really, Lucasfilm and um, Disney Publishing worldwide, felt like a lot of the kids today who were born, you know, decades after the original trilogy came out are entering the series through Rebels and through um, the Clone Wars animated series and even through the prequels. So I think they felt that with the reintroduction of the, you know, the original, the original threesome of Han, Luke and Leia in the new films, they kind of wanted to go back and basically have a new like retelling series of the original trilogy and we were pretty much given permission to like go at it and have fun with it and approach it from any direction we like. So all three of the novelizations are so different from each other and they reflect kind of our personal style and our priorities as storytellers. So we're not really messing with the story itself, but we're finding different ways of retelling it and and in different formats. So for instance, in mine, my retelling is, you know, just the straight plot of A New Hope all the way through, but it's divided between the tight third person point of view of Leia who opens the book and then it switches over to Han in the middle section, pretty much from the uh, cantina teen all the way until uh, Obi-Wan's death. And then it ends with Luke. So the challenges of that were figuring out the priorities of each character and kind of really zooming in on their characterization and mining different elements of their personality, especially with Leia, because she gets so little screen time in that in the film. And she's not, I would say, not quite as developed as Luke's arc or even Han's arc in the story. So I pitched this to my editor as basically being the Star Wars Breakfast Club. So the title is sort of like a nod to that. And the idea of like playing with the simple labels that the characters give themselves and others try to pin on them. So Leia is really dealing with the fact that she gets dismissed as a pretty princess, sort of like the Kate Middleton effect where she's a young senator and she's hungry for change and she gets kind of brushed aside by the Holonet reporters and the other senators. 
and they basically are more interested in what she's wearing. Um, and Han is really focused on the idea of him struggling with wanting to have something to believe in, but also holding firm to his own personal code of ethics. And Luke was really fun too, because Luke is a little bit of a blank slate. So I really focused in on something that actually was sparked by something I've read in Brian Daly's radio adaptation of A New Hope. I think that came out in the early 80s, maybe, about the idea that Luke was basically raised in poverty and didn't necessarily have the same opportunities as his friend Biggs did and sort of casting Luke in that light as someone who um, is sort of making his own destiny, I guess. Well, so you mentioned drawing from the radio play. Did you draw from anything else like the Foster novel or any other other expanded universe kind of stuff? When I when I was first talking to my editor, Mike Siglain, he basically said the two scripts, the two sources that we consider canon, and if not, we will tell you when we review the manuscript. Hmm. The two like safe sources to pull from are the radio adaptation and the Star Wars script. And so everything else, he was like, in theory, as long as it doesn't contradict something that will happen in the movies later on down the road or something that is sort of established in the films, like you can really have fun with it and you can do the off-camera scenes and you can kind of play a little bit with their backstory, but not not a ton. Um, so... With the radio drama, I had the privilege of being able to adapt directly from it. And as someone who grew up reading the expanded universe, I was constantly trying to find ways to slip in little tidbits from the expanded universe, sort of as like a little mini rebellion. I guess <laughs> I should I should start calling it Legends. I need to get in the habit of calling it that. So like certain elements of Leia's backstory, I think expanded universe fans will recognize. Um the only thing that I really was not allowed to include was like the traditional backstory of how Han met Chewie, which I guess I did not realize had never actually been depicted in a book series, um, but it had been sort of like generally accepted as to how he met Chewie and he sort of set Chewie free and they, he owed him a dead and all of that business. And that was really the only clue that I had that they were eventually going to make a Han Solo Film, the young Han Solo film was because they were like, nope, nothing about Han's past, nothing hmm. at all. <laughs> well, I mean, Chuck, do you want to talk about this too, in terms of how much from like how much of the how much of the idea of the book were you given, and what were your constraints in writing it? And what were you allowed to play with or make up on your own? The constraints were actually negative constraints, where they came to me and said, "These are the things you can't do." These are the characters you can't use. Obviously, we don't have much um, of the, the big three, the Holy Trinity in the book. Um, and just as she said, you know, Alexander said about certain things of no backstory, um, we, you know, had similar restrictions there and the things we couldn't talk about. Uh, and then with those sort of negative, you know, uh, uh, restrictions in place, then it was a case of, we'll pitch us a story. Uh, and so I pitched them, um, you know, a, a big novel, a big sprawling sort of, uh, novel for this thing. And the original idea was that we were going to do something that was explicitly World War Z flavored. Um, that was going to be, you know, allowing us to look through, uh, various lenses and various interludes across this unfolding war. Um, but to me, the value also in a Star Wars story is to, to actually still have a Star Wars story, have that adventure, um, the swashbuckling, the fun, 
um, and, and have sort of that central theme of a small group of characters being able to change the galaxy. And so I, I wanted that as well. So that's actually the central A plot. And then we do these things where we kind of dip into these interludes that allow you to visit various quadrants and corners and little nooks and crannies inside the galaxy, uh, which sometimes lets us play with uh, pre-existing characters who have popped up before. Uh, it sometimes lets us look at new characters and lets us look at, uh, uh, you know, how are the bounty hunters reacting to this? How is the criminal underworld uh, dealing with this? Um, you know, what's going on on Tatooine? What's going on um, with uh, this character and that character? And so uh, pretty much what I pitched ended up being the book that people got. Uh, so I'm pretty excited to, to have people read it. So, so when you say World War Z flavored, you mean in terms of the structure of the story, in not terms in terms of, the structure of, there of the being story. zombies in it? <laughs> no, the zombie Star Wars book is done. We're not. <laughs> I, I didn't do that one. Uh, yeah, but in terms of the structure, in terms of that sort of um, you know dipping in and out of a, a, a creating a, like a larger quilt of the narrative. Yeah. So, do you, did did they tell you anything about what was going to happen in Force Awakens so that you would kind of direct the story a little bit in that direction, or was that kind of a black a box as far as? A lot of it is verboten. Um, I I know kind of how we get there. That's sort of where I know. Um, but a lot of the details for the actual movie are going to be pretty new and exciting for me, too, which is great, actually, because one of the things going into this job, I was vaguely worried, like in an excited way, but worried that they were going to just like, because I've been avoiding spoilers so religiously and then to suddenly be like, well, here's the here's the whole story. I felt like I was going to be suddenly spoiled by my own job. Um, but I wasn't actually the, the movie remains kind of a big question mark for me. I know certain things on a few little tidbits here and there, and I know very much how we sort of get to that point in the galaxy, but I don't know what happens actually in the film. So it was just a kind of, was there anything in the book where you pitched it and they said, no, that contradicts something that you don't know about yet? Yes. There were a few things, which I, I obviously can't say, but there were yeah. a few, I included a few things and a few characters. I like, they're like, this is not an option. Um, and not for and for reasons I don't know, it doesn't necessarily have to do with Force Awakens. It may, um, but it's also because this is like a big organic garden, right? We're all planting seeds, uh, and certain things may pop up in other properties that they don't necessarily want to share yet. So I don't know that it's necessarily something that happens in Force Awakens, but it may be something that's uh, planned further down the line or something that someone is already working on. Uh, so, uh, and Alex, do you want to say anything about working with the you mentioned that other people wrote The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi retellings. Did you guys talk at all as you were working um, to make them uh, consistent at all? I mean, as I I came onto the project so late that I think those two books were already done by the time I started. And my editor, Mike, was very specific about like not letting me read the other adaptations because they wanted them to have their own flavor. And I think it ended up working out wonderfully because they do all somehow still sort of work together. So my story is really an in-depth intro to these three main characters and setting up the galaxy. And then you move on to Adam Goodwitz's Empire retelling called um, So You Want to Be a Jedi. And it utilizes um, the second person. So you are Luke Skywalker in the story, and it draws the reader, I think, more firmly into the galaxy. And then Tom Engelberger, who some people might know as the author of the Origami Yoda series, he wrote the Return of the Jedi adaptation, which is called Beware the Power of the Dark Side. And he has such an encyclopedic novel, or knowledge, excuse me, of the Star Wars universe that he used, utilized footnotes to like cram as much information as possible into it. So mine is sort of an intro. Adams, you know, draws you more firmly in and 
Tom gives you everything you could ever want to know about the universe. Is there anything, Alex, in these books that is a like a really significant addition or that cast things in a different light than people might have thought from just uh, reading the uh, from just watching the movies? So my I feel like in my book, I'm not I'm not so sure. I don't think this is. Actually, I take that back. I think it's true for Tom's book more than Adam's book because Tom really felt like he needed to rehabilitate the Ewoks hmm. and the, you know, the image of the Ewoks. So he made the very valid point that at the end of the Return of the Jedi, like, what are they feasting on? You just see all of these <laughs> empty stormtrooper armors and they're like the apex predator of Endor. Like, they're, you know, so he like sets them up as fierce warriors. It's really fun. Greg um, Rucka's uh, new comic, Shattered Empire, has a little tiny bit to that, too. They, one of the rebels asks, like, what are we eating? And he's like, oh, <laughs> it's delicious. Like, okay. Things you don't think about when you're watching the yeah. cute bears dancing around. Um, <laughs> and then in my book, I felt like, so as I was saying before, I personally, I guess I felt like a little precious about Star Wars in terms of wanting to stay as true to canon as possible, or the at least the canon that I had grown up with. So I use, I utilize um the radio drama to fill in a lot of the off camera scenes that we don't see in the film so um i'm trying to think of a good example of this like when they first arrive at the rebel base at the end at yavin 4 and getting like the han rebel commander interaction um and like when leia sees the death star for the first time but a lot of these i couldn't directly adapt because they were i mean it was written in the 80s so you know, certain technology. They we're talking about like, I'm trying to remember data tapes. I was like, I don't know what that is. Is that like something you made up? Is that like an 80s sort of technological thing that I just did not miss as a child or I missed as a child of the 90s? Um, and like, if there was something I really disagreed with, I kind of recast some of the radio drama scenes in a different light. But I did get to insert like a lot of my own. Um, and, imaginings for instance um i really felt strongly that leia would have tried to escape on her own at least once so i got to write a leia escape attempt um and a lot of my work though was kind of fleshing out the emotional arcs and kind of like finally addressing some of those oh really moments as i call them <laughs> like um my favorite example is after they get away from the Death Star, you see Leia consoling Luke, like, oh, I'm so sorry this old man you knew for six hours died. Meanwhile, my whole planet and all of my family and my entire future just got completely blown up. So kind of like addressing that in a more sensitive, um, a sensitive manner, let's say, um, and having Luke kind of be more self-aware in moments like that. So. Well, it's funny you mentioned the tapes because that's one of the big things of science fiction from the pre-digital era is that you know computers use magnetic tape, and so science fiction writers imagined in the future we'll have really advanced tape. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I was like, data tape? What yeah. is this? It was like the Death Star plans were on data tape. So I'm like, maybe I'll switch this to disc. <laughs> but it's one of the things I like about certain retreads of that era's science fiction, like in the um, I think Alien: Isolation, the video game kind of that plays as a sequel to Alien, uh, it carries the 70s aesthetic very well. So it's sort of an interesting, like they don't assume that it has evolved any. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, Well, Chuck, tell us, why don't you tell us just about the, the plot of Aftermath? Just what kind of characters and world did you invent for the book? 
Sure. Uh, it's the book begins with um, everybody's favorite uh, pilot who doesn't get too much screen time in the films, Wedge Antilles, uh, stumbling. You know, he's basically trying to suss out uh, the supply lines for the um, uh, Empire. The Empire is failing, but they still are um, capable of uh, of doing attacks on the, uh, the the fledgling New Republic, and so they're trying to find these supply lines. So he uh, susses out something far worse than the supply lines, and that he discovers a secret meeting of Imperials uh, on this planet, this backwater outer rim planet, this jungle world of Akiva. And there he discovers that these Imperials are actually, um, basically it's like a secret cabal looking to figure out it, how exactly the Empire moves forward. What will the shape of the Empire be? Will they have an emperor? Um, what? Uh, how do they survive? Uh, or do they surrender? And uh, he, you know, stumbles into that and gets captured and then has to be rescued by a ragtag group of uh, really like miscreants um, who sort of dial up that, you know, that broken group of heroes uh, that you sort of get from A New Hope. Um, you know, you have a, a, a pilot who's um, who's got PTSD. You've got a, a bounty hunter. You've got a, a washed up um, uh, AWOL Imperial loyalty officer. Um, you have um, the pilot's son who has built this maniac uh, bodyguard droid uh, from an old battle droid. So he calls him Mr. Bones. Um, <laughs> and this group of, uh, of miscreants sort of have to come together and uh, both save Wedge and uh, interrupt this meeting and discover the truth of what's going on behind the scenes. Well, yeah, and the, the battle droid character is Mr. Bones, right? You want to talk oh, about why did you decide to uh, have a, use one of the battle droids in your story? Sure. Uh, first of all, you know, I, one of the values of going forward in this um, new universe in this canon is that it allows us to acknowledge that the prequels and all the um, surrounding world building around the prequels, uh, like the TV show The Clone Wars and also um, Rebels, which comes after, existed. Uh, it's something you don't necessarily see in the, uh, the old EU because you couldn't. It wasn't obviously the fault of the EU, but those things simply didn't exist yet. So to be able to refer back to certain things and certain artifacts that exist is cool. Uh, and then on the other hand, the, the battle droids were sort of terrible. Like they were, <laughs> they were like the most inept fighting force in all of Star Wars history. I mean, stormtroopers are notorious for literally not being able to hit anything. Uh, but the battle droids were like even worse. But there, there's something aesthetically fascinating about the battle droids. They sort of look like a human skeleton with like a, a vulture skull on top. Um, and there's something really cool there. So I thought, well, okay, here's a, here's a kid who's got, um, you know, he's a little bit of a prodigy and he's capable of putting parts together very well. And so he engineers, uh, this, this battle droid who everyone will completely underestimate given the nature of battle droids. Uh, <laughs> and he will, um, you know, it's, he literally decorates the thing in actual bones, um, and half its head is missing, and there's like a you know red reticule up there, and uh, it's just this hard like its its face is sharpened to a point. Um, so he's got this sort of terrifying murder droid uh, who's helping him out uh, because he's ultimately sort of a black market kid. I mean, for as much as he's a 15 year old kid, he's firmly ensconced in the criminal underworld of this planet, and so he needs this maniac battle droid to protect him. So it seems to be a character who's very popular with people. So. I agree with you that the battle droids look really cool. I think you said that you had a battle droid toy before the movies came out, and you just imagined how awesome it was going to be. <laughs> I did, yeah. Like I went in and they have like a uh, their little flying jet thing. I was like, yeah, this is going to be awesome. And then it's like Roger, Roger. <laughs> oh boy, they're just basically you know cheese to be cut in half by lightsabers. That's the entire. They're just constantly wow, wow, and dropped in half. Right. Well, so when you're making up these new characters, do you think about? Like what makes a character feel like it's a Star Wars character and you, you just what makes a character feel like a Star Wars character when you're inventing these all new characters? Yeah, yeah, you know, and that's a 
curious thing because you want to sort of capture that pulp adventure vibe of uh, of the, the the movies and the TV show, uh, but obviously the novel allows you to have the form of the novel. I mean, allows you to experience the internal dimension. So you still you want to you want to get into some of the more meatier character bits without losing um, the adventure and fun intrinsic to star wars like obviously war is a big part of this book and you want to be serious about treating war and i you know there's parts of it that do that obviously looking at ptsd and examining the political stage across the entire galaxy um but one of the things that people might say the prequels um were a mis- you know the mistaken part of the prequels was that they focused over much on the political side of things and the you know when you start reading a crawl that's about trade federations you're like well that's going to be exciting for my son <laughs> so um you know, the goal is to sort of balance a little bit of that, keep the adventure and the fun part of the characters, and then also still give a little bit of the what you know, what's the the, the true nature of the galaxy? What's the what does war do to these characters? So, well, yeah, and you mentioned you know that like how is your son going to react? And my understanding is that Aftermath is the first quote unquote adult book in the new canon. Um, I was just wondering, do you see it as different from? Did you write it differently than if it were aimed at fourteen-year-olds uh, or something? Or was that something that was in your mind as you were writing it? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's hard to say because a lot of the most mature writing I have read uh, exists in the young adult space. Young adult is not shy from dealing with big stuff. Um, And Star Wars notoriously is accessible even when it's in a quote-unquote adult film. It's accessible to kids. Um, so I'm not I'm not trying to write some like vulgar porn fest here. It's a Star Wars novel. <laughs> it's made. It's an all ages book, uh, but it's adult in the sense that it does deal with these things like war. It does deal with um, post traumatic stress. Um, it does deal with family issues and generational issues. Issues that I don't think kids will necessarily shy away from or not understand. But it's issues that also speak to I think people of my generation and even beyond it. Um, it, it features characters who are older. Doesn't always necessarily feature characters who are all kids or all young. You know, bucks trying to make their way in the uh, the galaxy. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and Alex had mentioned that she had this secret program to try to sneak in as many EU things as she could. Did you have any sort of agenda along those lines? Uh, no, no real agenda. Like the EU for me, um, my reading of the EU kind of stopped with probably Stackpole. I, I obviously loved the um, the Zon books, uh, and the Stackpole books are you know x-wings they're great so i mean that some of that feeds into a little bit um and so there's some references there to those um but for me i was trying to keep it very explicitly and and part of this was a direction sort of given from um given at the fore of writing this book uh trying to keep it very explicitly in what we have already seen in terms of the new or the current canon meaning the films the television shows trying to keep it in that uh, realm and I, I mainlined all of the Clone Wars. Uh, I had seen some of it before, but I hadn't seen the entire end to end, including the new, you know, Netflix uh, specific episodes. So I sort of digested all that in my brain. Um, and I was already a fan of Rebels, uh, so bringing Rebels into that too was a big. Uh, that that was where my agenda was, sort of connecting it to those things. It's it's funny you mentioned that the the battle droids seem a little silly, and it seems like such a big part of being a Star Wars fan is hating certain things about star wars and i just wonder like now that you have this responsibility of you know carrying this forward do you feel like you're constrained at all in criticizing aspects of star wars or do you have to like how does that what what are the dynamics of that no i don't i think um engaging in the critical conversation is important just especially as creators to try to figure out what we want to do uh either differently or what we want to highlight um I, i don't to be clear, I don't. I don't think hate is any good part of fandom, uh, and there's no part of Star Wars in that that I that I hate. I love kind of all of it, even the stuff that I think is maybe a misstep is stuff that I um, it still exists in my head, and I still play with it um, in its own way, uh, as if it's all 
toys in my sandbox. Um, I think there is an aspect to fandom that sometimes is driven by um, that goes beyond critical uh, conversation and into that kind of like er that grr component of it. Um, and uh, I don't think that's necessarily healthy. I think fandom is more about uh, positive positivity and uh, being a fountain and not a drain, so to speak. Uh-huh. I mean, Alex, do you want to talk about that at all? What's your how do you talk about Star? Has this changed at all how you talk about Star Wars? I mean, I have always loved it so much that I've always hesitated to be critical of it openly because, I mean, I have certain gripes, especially with the prequels in terms of the storytelling, but I can always find something that I actually like about the prequel films. Like, we were talking about earlier the battle droids, how cool they look before we knew that they were just lightsaber fodder. Um, (laughs) Like, the designs and the costuming in the prequel films are amazing, as is the music, of course. Um, And there are certainly specific scenes and moments within each of the films that are really cool. And the world Um, building in those prequels is amazing. There's so much. I mean, it's it's almost a deeper world building. Sorry. Yeah. So I think, you know, there's like maybe one character I could do without in the prequel film. (laughs) I don't think he who must not be named. Um, (laughs) But I mean, I feel very protective of Star Wars. And I think, you know, a lot of people who genuinely love it also feel protective of Star Wars. And that's a very natural thing because you've invested so much time and energy and love into it. So I think, you know, my reading on the fandom is that people are sort of, everyone's excited about the new film, but there are like some people are more cautiously excited about it because I think they felt maybe burned in the past. And I know uh, people were not necessarily thrilled that the EU was sort of being brushed aside when they had, um, when they had invested again so much time and energy and love into these books and comics and video games. But I think it's really, we're in a really exciting time and I feel very optimistic about it in terms of just how many new stories we're going to get and different. I'm really excited, especially about the different anthology films that are like branching off. Just all of these side stories that we're going to get, like, how cool to see how the Death Star plans were stolen. That is like something I have never even thought to really imagine, but it must have been really dramatic and like really, really dangerous. And I like that we're going to be playing with like tones where, you know, the Han Solo movies are probably going to have a slightly different tone than say Rogue One. Um, so I think it's an exciting time and I, I am like, I can be critical about Star Wars, but I think as a Star Wars author, I now feel like doubly protective of it. <laughs> oh, I don't know if that's the best mind space to be, but. Well, well Alex, speaking of, of the fandom and stuff, what sort of responses have you gotten from Star Wars fans to your new book? Well, initially, I don't think that they were advertised as being for 8 to 12 year olds. So I think that people thought that we were genuinely rewriting those original movies and were not particularly happy about it. And then once it sort of was explained, oh, these are really for young readers as a entry, a fun kind of different way of like introducing them to this material. I think people ended up really digging them. And we've gotten great responses from um, educators and librarians who want to bring them into schools. And I just did the Decatur Book Festival and I had this little boy who was dressed in a stormtrooper costume and his mom had done up his um, his stroller to look like an AT-AT, basically. It was the uh-huh. coolest thing I'd ever seen. 
And I just like sat there and like watched his mom read it to him and how he was like riveted by it. And I was like, oh, that's exactly what I wanted because that's how I felt as a kid when I watched Star Wars. So I'm looking forward to it. The book comes out on the 22nd and we're talking a little bit earlier than that. So I'm very curious to see how the books are received, especially since they're all, the three of them are so different from one another. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and Chuck, I mean, your book is really, you know, as we said, the first one venturing into the post-Jedi space uh, yeah. in this new canon. So I would imagine you must be getting a lot of the brunts from people who were really attached <laughs> to the e EU as sort of being focused on you. Uh, what's that been like? Well, it's been interesting. <laughs> um, for the most part, it's been amazing. Um, fans, by and large, are um, an awesome group of people. They are uh, full of love and vigor and excitement and uh, just a, a massive amount of enthusiasm for everything that we're doing. Um, and that's great. So, you know, we actually launched the book uh, Midnight at Dragon Con, and I also was at the Decatur Book Fest. And um, so, you know, all weekend, it's like I just had people coming up to me, and they were like in the middle of reading the book, and they would be like, "Ah, oh, I'm so excited about this part." And then <laughs> they would ask me all these questions, like, "Who is this person? Is this?" Who I think it is? And then they would run away. It would be so <laughs> awesome. So I had like I just I was constantly sort of surrounded by like a fog of people, just like, "What about this?" So it was awesome. Um, that being said, at the same time that that was happening, literally the moment the book landed midnight uh, on Amazon, uh, it immediately began to collect a cascading waterfall of one star reviews uh and the reviews are they kind of cover a wide variety um but they kind of there's a lot of themes uh present um some of the theme and, and and i don't know what this is exactly i haven't really gotten my hands around it i don't know if there is a if we're looking at a venn diagram of um uh, eu fans who are upset uh that it's gone there has been some talk that there are some groups organizing quote unquote raids on the book to do these reviews um and there are also uh groups of people who are upset that I included homosexual characters in the book uh, one of them being one of the protagonists of the book um and there's also that component of the gamergate slash sad puppies who kind of again related maybe to the other two and it sort of speaks to you know kind of an issue with certain aspects of fandom and actually a certain aspects of politics and culture in general that there is kind of this weaponized nostalgia for things that we assume everything was better back then and nothing can be new and everything has to be a certain way and sometimes that purity that you so you think you want is occasionally related to more toxic ideas um again the, sort of the anti-homosexuality thing because i've gotten some interesting emails too after all this um so that campaign seems to be uh continuing at amazon um and they've getting getting a little more venomous at times, uh, but you know, again, that's I don't think that's actually a dominant uh, mode of fan, and I don't think that's the dominant reader who's reading this book. But I do think there's something maybe a little more organized uh, going on there. Yeah, Chuck, I'm sorry you're dealing with that. It really it just strikes me as like an outsider who didn't realize that was actually happening. It just seems like such a vocal minority. Yeah, I think it is a vocal minority. I think that's usually how it is. Spoiling other people's fun. I know, right? I know. But it's all right. Yeah, I mean, the book um, became a bestseller this week. so I was, Yeah, uh, congratulations. Both USA you. Today and New York Times. Yeah. And both, uh, like, the you know, the, I wrote that tweet on September 4th. It published on September 4th and like, <laughs> number four on both. So the fours, the fours is truly with me on that one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God, that's awesome. I mean, I, I think I only read about maybe 10 or so of the EU Star Wars novels. So I don't know. But uh, have there been gay characters in the Star Wars universe before? Um, yeah, um, yeah. There were uh, first of all, I think the first time you actually see it really is in Kotor, um, uh, Knights of the Old Republic, the video game. 
from Bioware. Uh, but I know there was a um a, a, a moth in um, Paul Kemp's one of Paul Kemp's books uh, who was a lesbian. Um, and I'm not sure if there's anything beyond that. Huh. Yeah, I'm not sure either. I'm trying to rack my brain here. I don't think any protagonists. Uh, yeah, certainly not like a character at front and center. I would say. Right. Do you want to talk? I mean, you mentioned there's been all this, this, this uh, hostility. Do you, and I, I, I didn't actually get a chance to read your post, but I understand that you you made a post uh, in response to this. Do you want to just talk about responding to this sort of stuff and what's the most constructive way to do that? Uh you know, it's tricky because writers generally shouldn't engage with bad reviews. And I, I specifically agree with that in terms of engaging with specific bad reviews. Um, but there did seem to be something a little larger going on here. So I thought I'd address sort of a larger thing. Um, in, in general, if, you know, people who have criticisms against the book are obviously welcome to do that because no book is going to be loved by everybody. And that would be weird to write that book. Um, I, I, you know, I have a very uh, explicit style. Um, and I carry that style to the book, um, so so much so that I do think it it's a it's very intrinsically a Star Wars novel, but it, there it can feel I think like a Chuck Wendig Star Wars novel, um, and I think that's not something unusual going forward in terms of Star Wars. You, they're hiring um, filmmakers who have very strong visual fingerprints. Um, Gareth Edwards, Rian Johnson, even J.J. Abrams. These are characters who use films you can identify um, both visually and thematically when you watch them, and I think that will carry. Um, into the the universe um so you know to sort of the general criticism i have nothing to say except i'm you know i'm sorry and i hope you like it um but in terms of the criticism that's either uh something driven by these the raids by small fan groups who are um so strident to bring back legends that they are angry at the new material i don't think that's valuable and i don't think it's valuable to their cause which ultimately i agree with uh, I, you know i think the legends were um you know, I didn't read super deep, but I think they're a great uh, line of books, and I'm sympathetic to them losing, uh, you know, storylines. Because I mean, it's not that the books don't still exist. One of the one of the things you can say in response to them wanting these books is, "Well, your books still exist. No one came and stole them from your bookshelf and burned them, so they're still there, so you can enjoy them." In fact, a lot of these books are still being printed and published by the publisher. Um, but their their point, and it's a fair point, is, "Well, we we were investing in a big storyline and." That storyline kind of just stopped. Like, we don't get to see. It didn't include to any satisfaction. So I'm sympathetic to that. Alternately, if your uh, mission there is to then take that love for the EU and turn it into hate for something else, I don't think that's really a valuable way to be a fan. And I certainly don't think that's fandom. Um, it's certainly, you know, in the, in the, the Star Wars sort of metaphor, you're, you've kind of gone to the dark side on that one you you know you know anger and fear and hate and all that good stuff um and then the larger message is for obviously people who don't want to see um homosexual characters or or any any sort of um lgbt representation inside uh a galaxy far far away it's very strange that they're comfortable with um aliens and uh lasers and you know, <laughs> yeah. lightsabers but they can't really stomach that that weird thing like someone in my blog today left a comment that they're like well i'm not a homophobe but and of course anytime they say the butt you're like yeah oh, okay here it comes well, let's just buckle down for that um and he said like i don't want to i don't read star wars to read about the real world so why do you have to have this political intrusion of homosexual characters and it's such a puzzling thing because that assumes that uh straight characters are such a default that they couldn't possibly be, be political that there's no it's so it's just well that's just how everything is that's the default that's normal and so i don't have to feel weird about normal um but that's a very toxic idea 
Um, and it's troubling to me. And so, you know, for me, my message there was, you know, you are actually the empire. Like your congratulations. You, you have, ta- if you think that Luke Skywalker is sitting around in those films, be like, Oh God, there's a gay guy next to me. Then maybe you really have miswatched those films and maybe you misunderstand, um, kind of the awesomeness of the light side and the awesomeness of the Jedi and what, what maybe these films are trying to get us to uh, think about. It seems so strange to me, too, because the inception of Star Wars, as I understand it, is that Lucas wanted to talk about the Vietnam War. Right. So it's not as if, <laughs> it's like, hey, you're getting politics into my Star Wars where it doesn't belong. I mean, that's the whole... Right. Science, science fiction is notoriously political, even when it's not overtly political. It's, I mean, you're, you know, it has a great value and advantage to be able to look, f- to be forward-facing. Star Trek has been very political and very um, progressive in many ways. And uh, I think it's puzzling to me that there is a sudden urge, sort of represented too by that sad puppies, Hugo's award sort of controversy of people who expect, they look back to a time of science fiction that actually maybe never existed, or at least not in a big as way they think. They kind of want rocket ships and ray guns, they say, and then it's like, you know, they kind of don't really want writer, writers who are women, and they don't want characters who hearken to political ideas, and they don't want quote-unquote agenda-driven fiction. Um, which is very strange to me when you don't want that in your science fiction. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Alex, do you want to add anything here just in terms of the passing of the EU and people's feelings about it as a Star Wars fan? I mean, I I remember when they announced the films and my initial reaction was sort of like, wow, really? Because I, well, and also because I felt like I was now going to have to eat a ton of crow because I had spent, you know, the last however many years telling people they will never make a seven, eight, nine because now they have all of this material that like it's center, still centered on, you know, the Holy Trinity upon Luke and Leia. So like they're, those actors are so much older now and Harrison Ford supposedly hates Han Solo and like they would never do it. And I just had made the assumption that they would adapt from the material that exists out there. And it somehow never occurred to me that all of a sudden all of these characters that I felt very attached to would suddenly, you know, n- they wouldn't be gone, like you were saying, Chuck, but they wouldn't be, like, considered the, the solid truth, I guess. The real, yeah. The real. Yeah. Um, And I felt like with the Legends, formerly known as the Expanded Universe, um, <laughs> we lost a lot of, like, really strong female characters that were multidimensional. When, if you think about it, in the original trilogy, you really only had, what, three female-named characters, Mon Mothma, Aunt Rue and Leia. I don't think any of the other female characters actually have like stated names, let alone personalities, really, um, which is sad. And I think that's I, maybe why Zon created Mara Jade because he felt like there was a need for a really good, juicy female character that wasn't necessarily just a type. Um, so I was really sad about losing Mara and I was sad about losing Jaina Solo, but I'm like very, it seems like a lot of these new characters are strong females. So I feel like hopeful and not so sad about it anymore, I guess. I've I've definitely fully gotten on this train going forward, but I did have, I mean, so I do really understand where people are coming from and being upset, but I don't know that everyone is necessarily making their unhappiness known in (laughs) a productive way, as you were saying, Chuck. So all right, so we're pretty much out of time. Um, Alex, you want to tell us, do you think you'll write any more Star Wars books? I'm hoping to. I would be very happy to. I have to tell you, when I wrote this one, I was so nervous. 
about like sitting down at the computer every single day that I actually wrote it out by hand and then transferred it over to the computer because somehow that felt like less pressure. So now that I've sort of like gotten through that mental and emotional hurdle of worrying that it wouldn't be good enough or it wouldn't do the story justice, I'm like ready to go and write something else. So if they have me back, I would love to. I would really like to write, um, again, as I was saying, I would really like to expand on Leia's past a little bit more as a senator or maybe explore Padme a little bit more. Um, there's a lot of like fun areas to play. It's like, I really feel like we're in an era of possibility with Star Wars. So if they'll have me back, I would love to. And Chuck, you have some more Star Wars books uh, on the agenda? Sure. Uh, Aftermath is a trilogy. Um, so this is just the first book and I'm writing all three of them. So is there anything you can tell us about the other books? Uh, they will be book shaped and <laughs> no spoilers. I know. No spoilers. Yeah. The, the lightsaber would come and chop your head off, I guess. If <laughs> right. You yeah. Anything, right? yeah. The head would roll. <laughs> and then try to read the books. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right. Great. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Chuck Wendig and Alexandra Bracken. So guys, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Chuck Wendig and Alexandra Bracken for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Poopmaster30234, who writes, Geek's Guide is required listening. Look, if you're a reader, writer, or science fiction fan of any stripe, and you're not listening to Geek's Guide, you're doing it wrong. There's no better one-stop shop to pick up recommendations, relevant criticism, and interviews regarding genre fiction. Geek's Guide keeps you well-rounded, well-informed, and saddled with a comfortably overstuffed Amazon wish list. Also, Dave, you're amazing, but I am a struggling writer and I just got fired, so I can't do the Patreon thing. This is my token gesture of support. I mean every word. Keep fighting the good fight. So huge thanks again to Poopmaster30234 for that great review. And of course, a special thank you to Johari Ismail and Lou Frederick, who both just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd prefer to make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.